Welcome to the wicket. Hello, and it's time for another episode of The Wicket, a podcast from Arab News, looking at the world of cricket locally in the Gulf, regionally across Asia and worldwide. I'm Brian Murgatroyd, and with me to discuss and analyse events across the globe are Arab News columnist John Pike and Arab News cricket reporter Sebash Hamagain. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, Good morning. Good day, Brian. Morning, Brian. Morning, John. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the second test between India and England in Vishakapatnam, where India bounced back from their first test loss to level the series. The Asian Cricket Council Men's Challenger Cup, which is reaching the business end of proceedings as the sides, including Saudi Arabia, battle for places in the next stage of qualification for the 2025 Asia Cup. We'll speak about the one-off test between Sri Lanka and Afghanistan. World champions Australia have been testing their bench strength against the West Indies in a one-day international series. Megan Shute, the outstanding white ball seamer for the Australian women's team, who made her 200th appearance for her country in the one-day international series against South Africa, will chat about her. The DP World, ILT20, the UAE's own own T20 competition. That's reaching its business end. There's a new head of the Pakistan Cricket Board. That's been confirmed. And there's been a moment of controversy in the ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup in South Africa. On top of all that, we'll also ask John and Sebash for their highlights of the past week in cricket. So as ever, lots to cover. Let's get started. We'll begin in Vishakapatnam, where India won the second test uh, against England to level the five-match series at 1-1. It was a dominant performance by the hosts, who took charge by scoring 396, and after bowling England out for 253, the hosts rammed home their advantage with a victory inside four days. All the dominant performances came from India players, with opening batsman Jaiswal scoring a supreme 209 in the first innings. Shubman Gill in at number three weighed in with 104 in the second innings. And Jaspreet Boomer weighed in with nine for 91 in the match including 6 for 45 in England's first innings, as the visitors slipped from a high water mark of 114 for one. Sebash, India backed themselves to beat England on a good pitch. There was no sign of the raging turn as they produced after going 1-0 down in the home series of 2021. They did so impressively. It was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, Brian, it was an impressive win, but I think India were heavily reliant on Bumrah and Jaiswal. The first innings was spearheaded by Jaiswal and Bumrah produced absolute builders to put England down. Uh, I think if England's middle order would have converted the starts they got, I think the result could have been different, but brilliance of Bumrah was the difference for me. I think that ball to Root and Stokes is the whole story of Test match, uh, two unplayable days to break England's heart. Uh, even though Jaiswal's contribution was pivotal, I think it was Boomrah who brought back the momentum in India's favour. Yes, uh, Jaspreet Boomrah, absolutely outstanding. But John, England was said to have adopted a slightly more pragmatic approach to Bas Ball after going 2-0 down in the Ashes series against Australia last year. 
Did it need a bit more pragmatism this time too, I ask, as it's difficult to watch some of those England dismissals in this match and not think several wickets were sacrificed on the altar of all-out aggression? I don't think you can blame them for being aggressive in the second innings when prodding and poking around was not an option. The issue was in the first innings where three top-order players did not push on from getting into the 20s and Root, of course, made only five. I mean, he's too talented as a player to adopt an aggressive stance and I, I worry about, uh, about where he's going sometimes. The others aren't going to change. Yes, some of their dismissals are painful to absorb for purists, but they also bring success. Well, they do bring success and you just have to look at the success that England have had over the last couple of years under Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum for the evidence of that, I guess. But uh, Sebash, India, they now have the potential for an embarrassment of riches coming into the third test match if KL Rahul and Ravindra Jadeja, both absent injured from this match, plus Virat Kohli, who was unavailable for personal reasons, are available once more. If they are, what should the India selectors do? Should they stick or twist? Well, it's going to be a dilemma, but uh, I'd have all three straight into the squad. Uh, I think, yes, Bharat failed to utilise the opportunity. So, KL should come in, even though Bharat is a better wicketkeeper. But I think they, they need runs amongst the squad with KL coming in. And Zadeza is too good not to be there. So, he'll probably take place of Aksar or Kuldeep. Uh, Kohli, I think uh, he'll make the middle order more stable. I hope we'll see some other changes as well. I think Ayer and Patidar... They both are starts but could not convert it. So I think Sarfaraz coming in, having his first cap would be special. Well, that would be fascinating if there were multiple changes like that to a winning side for India. We wait to see what happens there. John, there's a long break now until the third test, which gets underway on the 15th of February. What do you think should be England's thought process in terms of selection for that next match? Keep the same side or, or tinker as they did after the first test win? I think the issue is who's going to be selected to bowl and how the pitch is assessed in, in Rajkot. I mean, Jimmy Anderson bowled 35 overs, 5 for 75 in the match, which is really quite impressive for a man of, of his longevity. And Mott Wood played in the first test, Atkinson Robinson twiddling the thumbs. They only pick one seamer, and what happens with Leach? He's not a great wicket taker, but he does have uh, tight control. If he plays, then one of the young spinners has to be left out. On the other hand, both Ahmed and Hartley have shown they can bat. I think there's some tough calls to be made. Yes, I think there probably are. But uh, Joe Root, Sebash, he failed twice, 5 and 16 in that second test, but he opened the bowling in the first innings, sending down 14 overs for 71. He only bowled two overs in the second innings, but of course that's off the back of a very heavy workload with the ball in the first test. Is the reliance on Joe Root's bowling, I wonder, costing England a valuable asset with the bat? I think Stokes and Baz need to have a clear plan with Joe here. Uh, his batting is still great, but I think his bowling duties may be hampering the cause. Uh, this time I think he had... No chance with that Boomerang delivery though. But uh, if they want to root the batter, I think he should be kept as part-time option only. I think bo- in this game itself, uh, bowling him that much when they have three spinners in the squad, I think it was a bit unexpected. Well, it, it, he did uh, have to bowl a lot, particularly in that first test. John, I'm interested about your view about the way the young England spinners have performed. Tom Hartley and Shoaib Bashir, both on their first tours, Shoa Bashir, of course, making his debut in the second test. How do you think they've gone? I, I think on balance, they've probably gone better than anyone would have expected them to. Yes, I mean, obviously Hartley made a name for himself in the first test. In the second innings of the second test, he picked up what, four for 77 in 27 overs, which is pretty good. Ahmed took six wickets in the match, about 30 runs apiece, pretty reasonable rate. Bashir was more expensive on debut. But what concerns me is what chances they'll get in English conditions. 
So their management um, in the future is going to be uh, pretty key to that. At least they've been given a chance. And I think under previous um, regimes, they wouldn't have, have got that chance. Yes, uh, Tom Hartley, Shoaib Bashir and uh, Rehan Ahmed all getting opportunities under this current England regime and uh, certainly doing their best to justify that as well. Well, the third Test match gets underway in Rajkot and we'll discuss it in a couple of weeks' time. The Asian Cricket Council Men's Challenger Cup is taking place in Bangkok, Thailand, with two teams looking to secure spots in the ACC Premier Cup, which is the qualifying event for the 2025 Asia Cup, where the major teams in the region battled it out for 2020 international supremacy. The Challenger began with a three-team event between China, Cambodia and Myanmar, with Cambodia winning through to play alongside Bhutan, Indonesia and Saudi Arabia in Group A, while Japan, the Maldives, Singapore and Thailand were in Group B. As we record this podcast, we're ahead of the semi-final stage, which takes place on Friday the 9th of February, with Saudi Arabia set to face Japan, while Singapore will go up against Cambodia. Saudi Arabia were the only unbeaten side in the group stage, winning all three of their games convincingly, with Abdul Wahid scoring 99 against Cambodia. Speaking of which, Cambodia lost that match, but then secured back-to-back wins to claim second spot in the group. Group B, well, Singapore pipped Japan to top spot, by securing a 34-run victory when the two went head-to-head. That was a vital win because both teams, whether they wanted to admit it or not, would have been keen to avoid playing Saudi Arabia for a spot in the final and, more importantly, a spot in the ACC Premier Cup. John, this seems to have gone to the uh, expected script so far, with Saudi Arabia proving far too strong for the other sides in their group. They're led by an experienced coach in Kabir Khan, who's previously held the role with both the UAE and Afghanistan. And they're playing like a top side they are in this company, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. Now they have Japan to contend with. And this is an interesting matchup for the Arab news. Now, neither Saudi uh, or Japan is renowned um, for cricketing prowess, but they're both key bases for, for the Arab news. Uh, and it's a chance, uh, I think, for us to put them on the cricketing map. I know that there are some, some work going on behind the scenes to um, try and capitalise on this. Yes, it's going to be, as you say, John, a fascinating matchup, and we'll keep an eye on that. You can be sure of it. Sebash, let's speak about Cambodia and also Japan, of course, because uh, as John alluded to there, Japan is certainly a terrific story, but Cambodia as well, because Cambodia have come through the qualifier to reach the uh, semi-final. What have you made of those two teams' performances? I'd like to say two different stories here. The way Japan played in the under-19 setup had us impressed. The senior side had just continued that. Uh, some of the guys from youth squad are here too. Uh, I think the win against the host Thailand in the first match was very important. Uh, Still think it's tough for them to go on better, but uh, I think this alone will help to push cricket development in that country. And on the other hand, Cambodia, I think they've relied heavily on the experts uh, since the Southeast Asian Games. Last year, they brought in full squad of experts and sucked Malaysia and Singapore in that tournament. So I think uh, 
the rules won't allow them to have similar overhaul but i am not fan of big move like that uh, still looking at the positive side there if results go their way more youngsters will start to come into the game and it's good for the game in the country but uh, if they're not investing in grassroots and looking only for the experts i think it's a big no yes that's going to be fascinating to see how things develop in cambodia not only in the short term but in the long term if you want more detail on the tournament then you can go to the arab news website where Richard Lockwood is filing stories on every match Saudi Arabia play. There's video content on the Saudi Arabia squad too, and you can find it at www.arabnews.com forward slash cricket. By the time of our next podcast, we'll know the side that's won this tournament and more importantly, which two teams have qualified for the ACC Premier Cup. Sri Lanka and Afghanistan played a one-off test in Colombo ahead of ODI and T20I series. And given the golf inexperience in the long game between the two teams, perhaps the result was predictable with the hosts winning by 10 wickets inside four days. Afghanistan collapsed twice with the bat from 109 for two to be 198 all out in the first innings and then from 214 for two to 296 all out in the second. It meant that Sri Lanka's own collapse from 380 for three to be 439 all out didn't matter too much, as the hosts were left with a simple fourth innings target of 56. For Sri Lanka, there were hundreds for Dinesh Chandimal on a flying visit from the DP World ILT20 in the UAE, and Angelo Matthews, who, after being timed out during the Cricket World Cup last year, added another bizarre dismissal to his collection by falling hit wicket to spinner Case Ahmed when he pulled a long hop and followed through to hit his own stumps. Sebash, it was the first test between these two sides, but surely for Afghanistan to get better in the format, they need more than one-off tests, don't they? They've now played 10 test matches since 2018, with an 11th coming at the end of February against Ireland in the UAE. But eight of those 10 have been one-off matches, with just one series, if you can call it that, a two-match clash with Zimbabwe in the UAE in 2021. They must play more series if they're going to get serious about Test cricket, mustn't they? Yeah, I think the lack of Test matches has been a big problem. The same cases with Ireland and Zimbabwe too. Uh, while top associates are dreaming to get Test status, uh, I think it's disheartening to see these teams not getting more matches. I think uh, the top teams have repeatedly shown how competitive the game can be and... I think there should be more fixtures to level playing ground. And even in this test, I think Afghanistan had momentum, but uh, I think lack of experience caused the downfall. So the more the matches, the media for all the test sites. Yes, of course, uh, more than anything, it tends to be a financial issue with teams. The cost of staging at five-day uh, test cricket is uh, not cheap, that's for sure. But John... Jonathan Trott, the Afghanistan coach, said after the test match he saw, in his words, promising signs in his side's performance. Well, there was a maiden test 100, 114 for Ibrahim Zadran and scores of 91 and 54 for perhaps their best test batter, Ramat Shah. What did you make of Afghanistan's efforts or is it impossible to judge, uh, given what we were saying earlier, just this one-off nature of a match? Um, I think Trot's comment sums it up. The promise was in the top order batting performances, um, but the bowling didn't seem strong enough. Oh, Naveed Zadran took four for 83 in 23 overs and the others were rather expensive. And as you referred to, Matthews and Chandimal's 
third wicket partnership of what 232 cemented the game for them. They could only get better by playing more. Yes, that's the way of it. And they'll get the opportunity at the end of February, as we've mentioned already, against Ireland. But uh, in the meantime, these two teams, with plenty of changes in personnel now, they switch to white ball mode. And we'll speak about those matches in our next podcast. Australia and the West Indies are following up their excellent drawn test series with white ball action in one day internationals before a 2020 international series, part of both sides' preparations for the upcoming T20 World Cup in the USA and the Caribbean starting in June. The ODI series has been an opportunity for world champions Australia to test their bench strength. There's been no Mitchell Stark, no Pat Cummins, no Glenn Maxwell, and David Warner, of course, has retired from the format. And a 3-0 series win suggests it's been a success for the hosts. John Xavier Bartlett, the seam bowler who was the leading wicket-taker in the BBL with uh, champions there, Brisbane Heat, he's bounced straight into another format and excelled, taking four wickets in each of his first two matches. Well, that's encouraging for Australia, isn't it, with uh, Stark, Cummins and Josh Hazelwood unlikely to make another Cricket World Cup in 2027. An interesting battle's looming as to whom, to whom the mantle may pass. I mean, Spencer Johnson, player of the BBL finals, not being selected and is on standby. Um, Jason Berendorf, T20 player of 2023. And Sean Abbott, man of the match in the ODI win in Sydney, have been overlooped. Nathan Ellis is in but may not be fit. And, of course, we've got Mitch Marsh uh, as captain and looking like he's going to be the man in charge in the World Cup. Yes, and we can throw in the mix there as well. The man they call the wild thing, Lance Morris. He picked up a couple of wickets on his one-day international debut in the third game in Canberra, but then had to uh, walk off with a side strain. So it'll be interesting to see how he progresses with that injury and uh, how quickly he can come back into contention. Sebash, Casey Carty, he looked the part with the bat. He made 88, 40 and 10 in the series. But other good news stories were thin on the ground for the West Indies, who, let's remember, didn't qualify for the 2023 Cricket World Cup. And, well, after the euphoria of the test win in Brisbane, this really was a case of coming back to earth with a bump, wasn't it? I think that looks to be the case, Brian. Uh, I'd say they struggled to get used to the change in format. Uh, Australia, they had change in personnel with some exciting debuts. Bartlett ending up getting player of the series. Fraser McGurk went berserk in the world go. And in the third match, it felt like Windows needed to go soul-searching. Uh, Hope had a series to forget, both with the bat as a captain as well. No, They are nowhere near the team this should be. Uh, good thing that they have strong T20 squad, but uh, you never know if I say they used to have now. Yes, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that T20i series goes, particularly with both sides having one eye on the World Cup to come later this year. That T20i series is next, and we'll feature details of that in our next episode. The one-day international series between the Australia and South Africa women's teams is ongoing in Australia at the moment. We'll assess the three matches as a whole in our next podcast. But for now, let's talk about Megan Shute, the Australia seaman swing bowler who made her 200th international appearance across the formats in the first match of the series. And it was an impressive appearance too. She produced remarkable figures, five overs, four maidens, one wicket, and conceding just one run in the process. It set the tone for what followed as Australia romped home by eight wickets. John, talk to us about Megan Shute. 
She doesn't get a look in for the test side, as Australia generally prefer to use their faster bowlers for that format. But in white ball cricket, she really is outstanding, isn't she? No one has taken more T20I wickets in the history of the women's game. And she does tend to go below the radar, which is um, quite strange. As you said, she swings it right arm, she's medium fast. And it's, um, it's, it's strange that she does go so far beyond the, beyond the radar. Subash, what impresses you most uh, when you think about Megan Shute? I think her competitiveness. Uh, Australia are lucky to have someone performing consistently for so long. She's been around more than a decade and seems to get better with this. That spill in the first ODI alone speaks volume. Uh, I think Beth Mooney after the match said that she finds in her best form at the moment, despite having 200 matches with Australia, has had domestic success in the WBBL foreign league under her belt and in her 30s, I think, but she doesn't look like slowing down just yet. Impressive stuff from Megan Shute. And as I mentioned, we'll cover off the whole One Day International series between the Australia and South Africa women's teams in our next podcast. As we record this episode, the group stage of the UAE's own 2020 tournament, the DP World ILT20, is hurtling towards its conclusion. MI Emirates are comfortably the top side in that group stage, with West Indies wicketkeeper batter Nicholas Puran and Afghanistan left-arm senior Faisal Haq Faruqi being among their standout players. But the five teams below them have been involved in an almighty scrap for the three remaining places in the end-of-season playoffs. Teams certainly haven't been helped by comings and goings because of international commitments, a trend that's going to continue at the back end of the tournament. As an example, the Desert Vipers, a side that struggled to recreate their form of the inaugural season when they finished as runners-up, they've lost Azam Khan, Shaheen Sharafridi and Shadab Khan. They have departed with Pakistan's Super League preparation on their agenda. They've also lost batter Shafane Rutherford to the West Indies Australia T20I series to come. Teams are set to parachute players in over the last couple of weeks of the tournament, most notably from the SA20, the South Africa tournament, as franchises get knocked out there. John Liam Livingston and Adil Rashid of England are two examples of players who've jetted in in this case, to bolster Sharjah Warriors for the group stage run-in. But even for experienced cricket watchers like us, I guess it's tough, isn't it, to keep track of who's playing for who? So it's going to be even harder for casual watchers, isn't it? Well, I'm struggling for sure to keep track of the merry-go-round. Maybe it doesn't register so much with casual watchers and may focus on team performance, irrespective of who's playing. Apart from Rashid and Livingston, who didn't really help the uh, Warriors course too much, there are other comings and goings, too numerous to mention. And I can't resist the use of the phrase parachute payments. Yes, uh, certainly players are coming and going with, uh, well, dizzying uh, rapidity. There's no question about that. But, Sebash, as we get to the crunch stage of the regular season, which do you think of the five sides going for the three remaining playoff spots? That's Abu Dhabi Knight Riders, Gulf Giants, the Desert Vipers, Dubai Capitals and Sharjah Warriors will make it. And why? I think uh, Saza look out of touch and have been outclassed in recent outings. So even on paper, they need to be... At the best, and the players are not doing so. So I think uh, the struggle in the table will continue. Uh, Knight Riders are favourites to make it. Uh, I think Vipers versus Capitals is going to be an important match to see who goes where. Uh, Vipers, I think it's time to, for them to rejuvenate the tournament as it enters the business end. Uh, with individuals they have, I think they should be in the mix. And Giants after that, we know about Capitals. I think they have one foot into the playoffs. So for me, I think Warriors and Capitals are going to miss out. 
Yes, uh, it'll be fascinating to see how that uh, wraps up, that group stage, which then goes into the end-of-season playoffs. Remember, the Gulf Giants are the defending champions, having beaten the Desert Vipers in the inaugural season. By the time of our next podcast, we'll be into the knockout stages of the tournament. Let's chat now about Pakistan and the Pakistan Cricket Board as a new chairman. Mohsin Nakvi has been elected unopposed and he's set for a three-year term, taking over the role from PCB election commissioner Kawar Shah, who held the role briefly after Zaka Ashraf resigned. Nakvi is also Punjab's caretaker chief minister and reports say he'll continue in that role as well as filling the PCB position. The first item in his in-tray is the latest edition of the Pakistan Super League, which is set to get underway on February the 17th. Sabash, is this appointment for those three years the signal that calm will now prevail in Pakistan cricket after recent upheavals? I think the appointment uh, has come in a lock for a lot of people in Pakistan. Him juggling around with two very important roles, I think. Uh, and with Pakistan cricket going dim and gloom at the moment, I think uh, it's not quite the stability that the PCB wanted, but uh, he has time to look at the PSL and then the international commitments. The spectators, the followers will look at the PSL and how he'll carry on with it. But I still have doubts him going with two roles at the same time. And John, what do you make of developments in Pakistan? I think it's ironic that a country like Sri Lanka gets penalised by the ICC for political involvement in, in the game of cricket. I don't think that Pakistan's any better in this uh, this respect. This is uh, Another appointment which is in a long chain of, of political involvement with the game in that country. And um, I can't imagine that it's going to bring um, stability um, any more than has uh, been the case in the past. We'll wrap up the ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup in detail in our next episode. But for the time being, let's focus on one incident that happened since our previous podcast in the match between Zimbabwe and England in the Super 6 stage of the tournament. Hamza Sheikh, the England batter, defended a ball from left-arm spinner Ryan Simbi, and the ball was stationary on the crease line. As the wicketkeeper Ryan Kamweba came from behind the stumps to collect it, Sheikh bent down, picked it up and gave it back to the keeper, who then caught it and immediately appealed, as did the bowler. The matter was sent upstairs to the third umpire, and Sheikh was given out, obstructed the field, something that now includes handling the ball within its compass. John, technically this was out, and the third umpire had no choice but to press the red light. But what did you make of it? Simultaneously, um, opportunistic and naive. Uh, I don't think that Sheikh will do that again. I think it's a real shame that being friendly in cricket gets penalised. Sebash, there's a school of thought that says batters simply shouldn't pick the ball up, even if it's to do the decent thing, as John said there, being friendly and pass it back to the uh, the bowler or the fielder. But does this sort of conduct by Zimbabwe bring the whole law into disrepute? As clearly there was no chance the ball would roll onto the stumps. Uh, we did, after all, see Mushfika Rahim dismissed in a test against New Zealand last December when he did actually push away a bouncing ball, but this ball was stationary. Well, I was surprised when I saw the video. Rahim's case was legit. Uh, he himself accepted the decision back then, but uh, here the ball was stationary and Sex just gave the ball back like, like every person would do. Uh, I think he was 
punished for being a gentleman in the gentleman's game, but uh, in no world you should be appealing for that. Well, the final of the tournament is on the 11th of February, and we'll talk in detail about uh, the ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup in our next episode. Finally, gentlemen, we'll continue our trend of recent weeks and pick a highlight or something that's caught your attention from the past week in cricket. What has that been? Subash, if I can start with you, please. It has to be Malaysia beating Canada to lift the Tri-Series in Hong Kong. I think the change in captaincy and coaching looks to have helped Malaysia to get the next step. And I'm excited to see Virandip leading the team in the Premier Cup as well. Well, a good effort from Malaysia there to beat uh, Canada, who, of course, uh, are one of uh, the up-and-coming sides in the next tier of Associates Canada have been down on their uh, well, haunches for quite some time now, or over a decade or so, but they're, they're on the way up again. So it's an excellent win, that, for Malaysia. John, what's uh, tickled your fancy? Uh, for me, it's Kane Williamson, 200s in the match against uh, an admittedly depleted South African team. And it would be remiss of me not to mention Rashin Ravindra's double hundred and uh, the way in which he... Um, described his partnership with uh, Kane Williamson as almost a dream come true. I do think it, uh, it illustrates the, the gulf that has to be jumped um, between levels, between a, effectively a, a second eleven South African team and a, and a very strong New Zealand side. Yes, uh, no surprise there with John's choice. Of course, John, as regular listeners to uh, this podcast know, is the uh, founder member and president of the Ratchin Ravindra fan club. But uh, Rest assured, too, we'll have a chat about that uh, South Africa-New Zealand test and all it entails in our next episode. Well, that's it. And thanks for joining us at The Wicket. We'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on what you've heard wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd along with John Pike and Sebastian Hammergain saying thanks so much for listening and we look forward to your company next time. <laughs>